Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Element Church. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here. And because this is the fifth Sunday in October, we are switching gears uh, for something a little different today. Now, if you've been a part of Element Church for a while, this will be familiar to you. Um, if it's been a while since you've been here or you're new with us, in addition to just saying welcome, um, we are, we'll catch you up to what we're doing a little bit uh, this morning. Now, at the beginning of the year, we challenged everyone in our church uh, to pick a word for the year that represented what they believed God wanted to do in their hearts and in their lives. And so we challenged everyone to kind of sum up what is it that God wants to do in you this year in one word and, and to pick a word that would kind of keep you focused. In addition to challenging everyone in our church to do that, um, we as a church, the staff and elders got together at the beginning of the year and prayed about um, what would be the one word for our church that we wanted to focus on. And we came up with this word, this idea of margin, of building margin in our lives. And so what we decided we would do, in addition to introducing this idea and the word at the beginning of the year, is that every time throughout the year, that we came up to a month that had five Sundays. It happens four times every year. We would pause whatever study or whatever we're doing at that moment, and we would return and, and talk about this idea of building margin in our lives. And so this is the fourth time it's happened in 2021 that we've had a fifth Sunday. And so today will be our final week of talking about building margin in our lives. Now, what do we mean when we say margin? What are we talking about? Well, we've defined margin this way, that margin is the difference between what you have and what you need. Throughout this year, every time we've brought up this idea of margin again, we've looked at it from a different perspective. So we've talked about financial margin, about having margin in your finances, that difference, that space between what you need versus what you have. Because we recognize that as our margin decreases, stress increases. As that gap between how much money you need versus how much you have, as that gap gets closer and closer and closer together, we've all felt this in life, the amount of stress that we feel goes up. And so we've talked about financial margin, we've talked about scheduling or time margin, about building margin in our lives so that we can have the time to do what matters most. Uh, a few months ago, we talked about moral margin, about building moral margin in our lives. And today we're going to take one more approach to looking at it. Now, we have been studying the book of James. We're pushing pause on that. We'll resume that next week. But we've been talking about and have studied, been studying the book of James together. And really what we have essentially talked about throughout our study in James is we've talked about building a life of wisdom. That's kind of one of the key themes in the book of James. And with this series, we're talking about the exact same thing, about living lives of wisdom. What we're not trying to do in this series is to create a system of legalism. Legalism is when you adopt certain rules and standards for your own life and then force those rules and standards on others. Let me give you an example. When I was growing up, I had a youth pastor um, who always drove 
10 to 15 miles per hour in residential areas. He would never go faster than 15 miles per hour in a neighborhood. And that was a personal rule or standard that he had set up for his own life. Now he recognized there was nothing immoral about going 20 or 25 in a residential area, but for him, he would not go faster than 15 miles an hour in the neighborhood. And here's the reason why. When he was 16 years old, he was driving through his neighborhood. He was not speeding. He was just going 25. And a child ran out into the road in front of him. And not his fault, but he did hit that child and the child died. Now, police did their investigation and affirmed he was not driving distracted. He was not driving recklessly. He was not speeding. There were multiple witnesses to the event. All of them confirmed he was not driving recklessly. Uh, he was not distracted, and he was not speeding. It was not his fault. But he carried a lot of weight from that moment in his life when he was young. And he wasn't speeding, but he just set a standard for himself that he would never go more than 15 because he felt like as long as he was going 15 or below, no matter what happened, if someone or a child were to run out into the road, he would have enough time to stop. And he used to tell this story to all of us in his youth ministry every time we, one of us turned 16. Now, he never once put on us that we should drive only 10 or 15 miles an hour in the neighborhood. He never put that on us. He would tell the story just to sort of remind us of how important it is to to, to obey the speed limit, to be very careful, don't be distracted. You know, back then, none of us had cell phones, so your distraction was you were messing with your CD player, you know, your Walkman that had a cord that went into the tape deck in your radio. You remember those? That's what we were distracted by. But, but he would give us these, this speech as a warning to not drive distracted because he used to talk about the weight that he felt from being involved in that accident. And he, he used to tell us, like, imagine how much more guilt and weight I would feel if I had been going 28 or 30 miles an hour. Now, legalism would be if he had taken his standard of driving 10 or 15 miles an hour and forced it on other people as though they were being sinful or immoral or reckless if they chose to dro drive 20 or 23 or 25 miles an hour in a neighborhood, which he didn't do. But that's what legalism is. It's when you create a special rule or standard for your own life, and then you force that on other people. In this series, we are not trying to take a legalistic approach. We are not trying to add new rules uh, beyond what the Bible sets for us. Really, what we're talking about is living a life of wisdom, about creating some margin in your life. You know, our society tells us that the real danger zone is at the bottom of the cliff. Because at the bottom of the cliff, that's where death and destruction and ruin are. And society says you should avoid those things. But what the Bible teaches is that the real danger isn't at the bottom of the cliff. The, the danger is at the edge of the cliff. And what we're doing in this series is talking about taking one step back from the edge of the cliff about creating some margin between us and that edge. It's about asking the question, what is wise? Not, what can I get away with? Not, how far is too far? But really, what is the wise thing to do? 
And today we're talking about relationships. We're talking about relational margin. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever met someone in your life that you later wished you had never met? Parents, do your kids have people in their lives where have they ever met people you wished they had never met? When we think about the greatest regrets in our lives, those moments of sin, those great mistakes, they almost always involve someone else. Very rarely do the greatest regrets and mistakes and sins in our life have nothing to do with other people or involved no other person. Because we recognize and we can all understand that the people we have in our lives influence us for good or for bad. Now what we're going to do this morning is we're going to turn our attention in just a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But before we do that, I want to give you some background to what it is that we're going to read. So 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. Many of you are familiar with his name. The Apostle Paul, early on, earlier in his younger days, was one of the greatest critics of Jesus and opponents to his ministry and his mission. Paul hated everything Jesus stood for, all the things that he was teaching, and what was, the, what was coming out of the ministry of his life. Paul authorized the very first murder of the first Christian martyr. Paul went around arresting and persecuting Christians just because of their faith and allegiance to Jesus. But everything changed the day Paul met Jesus himself face to face after the resurrection. That meeting radically transformed Paul's life and he went from the greatest destroyer of the church to its greatest builder. He became the greatest missionary in the first century, maybe over the last 2,000 years, traveling around the Mediterranean region throughout the Roman Empire, starting new churches. Uh, in the late 40s or early 50s, Paul, in, along his journeys, ends up in an ancient city called Corinth on the Greek peninsula. There, Paul begins preaching about Jesus, establishing a church. He was only going to stay for a short period of time, but Paul actually ended up staying for about 18 months. And then later, in the early 50s AD, Paul leaves Corinth, travels around a little more, and soon will find himself in the ancient city of Ephesus, where he'll spend the next three years. And from Ephesus, Paul begins writing letters back to this church that he helped to start in Corinth. Now, we actually know that Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. That's the people who live in Corinth. Only two of those letters have survived. So we only have two of them in our Bible or that are even in existence. In our Bible, it's called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But that's only because they're the first and the second ones that survived history. They actually, in number, are letter number two and letter number four. And so what we know is that Paul wrote, he actually refers to it in 1 Corinthians about his first letter that we don't have. Um, Paul writes a letter to the church um, shortly after leaving because he knows that they've got some struggles. I mean, he spent 18 months with them, so he knows what their struggles are. 
Um, but he's heard that they've got some growing struggles. So he writes a letter. And then Paul is given an oral report. Somebody leaves Corinth, comes to Ephesus where he's at, and tells him things have gotten much, much worse. Not only did, did the church misunderstand your first letter, but things have gotten worse. There's a lot of problems. There's division. There's a lot of sexual immorality. There's a lot of false teaching. Uh, there's a lot of rough things going on in the church. So Paul writes another letter. It's his second one. It's the first one we have to address some of these issues that are going on in the church. One of the issues that they're dealing with is false teaching. And there is a group of people, either within the church or maybe outside of the church, trying to influence those in, but who's going around and teaching that there is no such thing as resurrection. Resurrection doesn't exist. And so Paul, in his writing to them, um, is arguing against this idea. And he says, okay, if there is no resurrection, then there are some serious concerns and consequences for that idea. He says, if there is no such thing as resurrection, that means Jesus never resurrected from the dead. Then he goes on to say, if Jesus never resurrected from the dead, that means my faith and your faith and our preaching is completely in vain. And if our preaching and teaching is completely in vain, then so is all the work that we've been doing to preach about Jesus. So is all the sacrifices that we've been making to spread the gospel. If there is no resurrection, then it nullifies everything we believe, everything we're doing, and every sacrifice we've made. Because the Bible actually teaches, not only was Jesus resurrected from the dead, but also teaches some other implications. Number one is that when you and I die, for those of us who are in Christ, immediately upon our death, we are in the presence of Jesus in heaven. But that's not where it stops. The Bible and Jesus himself also taught that one day there will be a great resurrection, that Jesus is going to return one day, and all of those who have died in Christ will be resurrected into new bodies, bodies like the resurrected Jesus has now, bodies that are incorruptible, that are free from pain and suffering and sin, and that we will then live with Jesus in this new resurrected state forever. And so Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then there are some serious concerns because it nullifies everything we believe, everything we do, and every sacrifice that we've made. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the discussion as Paul is reflecting on the sacrifices he has already made to share the gospel and to confront some of these people who have started to believe the lie that there is no such thing as resurrection. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, we start here in verse 30. And so he says, why are we in danger every hour? Essentially, why have we put ourselves in this position if there really is no such thing as resurrection? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so Paul says, what is the point of all the sacrifices that we've been making? If there is no resurrection. 
what's the point of any of it? And his answer is, if there is no resurrection, then there is no point. If there is no resurrection, if the dead will never be raised, if Jesus was never raised, if we have no future hope, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die because tomorrow means nothing. And then look what he says here. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, if you grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents, you probably heard this quote at a time or two. Parents, if you were looking for your next verse to memorize, this is a good one. You can repeat this to your kids often. They will love it, I promise. But I want you to look at what he says here. And I want you to think about what Paul does say and what Paul doesn't say. Because remember, we're talking, Paul is talking about how some of the people in this church have started to believe a lie. That there is no resurrection. And nobody, Paul doesn't say bad teaching will corrupt good morals. He doesn't say bad ideas will corrupt good morals. He says bad company will ruin good morals. In talking about these bad ideas, Paul draws the line from bad beliefs and bad behavior to the people or to the company we keep. Even though Paul is here arguing against an idea, he turns his attention to a group of people. Eugene Peterson um, passed away last year, but he was one of the world's premier biblical scholars. And I just want to read for you the way that he translated in a more modern language um, this section of the Bible. And so this is 1 Corinthians 15, 30 through 33, the verses we just read, but when he translated it, he puts it in a little more modern language. And if Paul were writing today, he might have written it like this. He says, And why do you think I keep risking my neck in this dangerous work? I look death in the face practically every day I live. Do you think I'd do this if I wasn't convinced of your resurrection and mine as guaranteed by the resurrected Messiah Jesus? Do you think I was just trying to act heroic? When I fought the wild beasts in Ephesus, hoping it would be the end of me? Not on your life. It's resurrection, resurrection, always resurrection that undergirds what I do and say the way I live. If there's no resurrection, we eat, we drink, the next day we die. And that's all there is to it. But don't fool yourselves. Don't let yourselves be poisoned by this anti-resurrection loose talk. Bad company ruins good morals. The Bible has been teaching this idea for thousands of years. I mean, Paul's words here are 2,000 years old. In a minute, we're going to look at another passage of Scripture that dates 3,000 years ago. But what the Bible has been teaching for a long time, science is now just beginning to catch up. 
There's an individual um, at the University of Northwestern, Dr. Morin Cerf, uh, who is a neuroscientist and a professor. And some of the things that scientists have been doing in recent years is studying and trying to figure out why people begin to think and talk and behave the same the more time they spend together. Trying to discover what it is that makes people think and act the same the more time they spend together, which is something anecdotally we know, and it's something that we've known has a social cause and influence for a long time. Before uh, I began studying theology and biblical languages, my academic background was in sociology. And sociologists have known for a long time that proximity is a correlation to thinking and attitudes and behavior. But now scientists are recognizing that it goes far beyond just social relationships, all the way to the level of the brain. And what neuroscientists have started examining and discovering is that the more you spend time with an individual, the more your brain waves begin to align. All the way to the level of brain waves. The more you spend time with someone, the more they start to get in sync. That's a scary thought. But I want to read some quotes from you from uh, Dr. Cerf's article that he had published a few years ago speaking of this whole idea and what scientists and neuroscientists have begun to discover he says the more we study engagement we see time and again that just being next to certain people actually aligns your brain with them and then he goes on in the article to start talking about the implications of what this means he goes on to say this if people want to maximize happiness and minimize stress, is that anyone in this room? Yep, I'm going to assume so. Me too. If people want to maximize happiness and minimize stress, they should build a life that requires fewer decisions by surrounding themselves with people who embody the traits they prefer. He goes on to say, over time, they'll naturally pick up those desirable traits and attitudes. And the opposite is also true. That by being in close proximity and spending time with people who have undesirable traits and attitudes, that we'll begin to pick those up as well. Now, here's what we're not doing. We are not making an argument based upon science this morning. We're making an argument based upon the truth of Scripture. Because Scripture has been teaching this for thousands of years. As our technology has advanced, scientists are able to look at a deeper level to see how this plays itself out. I want to share another Scripture passage with you from Proverbs 13, verse 20. And this passage in Proverbs 13 dates to about 3,000 years ago. It says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. I want you to think about this for a minute. I want you to look again at what the scripture does and doesn't say. What we would expect Solomon to say, who wrote this, Solomon, is whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. 
And whoever walks with fools becomes a fool. But it's actually worse than that. Walk with fools, and it's not just that you might become a fool, but when their life implodes or explodes, you're going to catch the shrapnel. Because people who don't care enough about their lives certainly don't care about yours. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That there's tragedy and suffering when we choose to keep company with people who don't have those attributes and traits and behaviors and beliefs that we aspire to. So how does this fit into the idea of relational margin? Well, the reality is all of us only have so much capacity in our lives for relationships. Now, we can acknowledge some of us have more capacity than others. Some of you are always looking to make your circle of friends bigger and bigger and bigger. Some of us, I mean, some of you are looking how we can keep people out of our circles, right? Some of us are extroverts and we feed off of that energy from other people and some are introverts and energy from others can be challenging or exhausting. And there's different kinds of introverts. There's some introverts who, who can handle a large crowd because they can hide in the middle of it, but struggle with the smaller group, one-on-one -on -one stuff where you can't hide. I'm the opposite. I can do fine. I'm an introvert, by the way. Most of you probably know this. Uh, I'm fine in the smaller group settings. It's the large group settings that are difficult for me. Now, church is not a challenge for me because I already know most of you and it's just different um, being in the role of, of a pastor. But there is nothing more anxiety creating for me than to walk into a room, a group, a large room full of people that I don't know and I have to meet people. Hate it. But listen, some of us have great capacities for relationships. Some of us may have smaller capacities, but all of us have limits. All of us have limits. And what we need to do in our lives is to create margin so that we have space for people who are going to influence us in a positive way. Now, this doesn't mean that people who are different than us, we push away. Because the Bible clearly teaches us that we are to be lights in the midst of darkness. That one of the roles we have as followers of Jesus is to be agents of reconciliation, to be out there influencing other people positively. But we're also challenged to stop and to think about who we're allowing a seat at the table in our lives. To stop and to think about who we allow to influence us. To stop and to think about who are we allowing close and consistent access to our hearts. Because the more we spend time with people, 
the more our thought patterns, the more our attitudes, and the more our behaviors and our beliefs slowly start to line up with them. So who are you allowing to influence you? What relationships have you opened yourself up to? If, if you were to turn out like the three or four people who are closest to you, is that who you would want to be? Because eventually it will be. And so as we think about this, I have five questions. Just as a way of stopping to think and reflect. Questions to ask yourself to help determine, are the people in your life the kind of people that you want to be? Are those people leading you in the right direction? Here's the first question. Are those you choose to spend time with becoming the kind of person you want to become? If in five or ten years you were to perfectly mirror the three or four people closest to you right now, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Now I recognize we don't always have total control over some of this. You may work in an environment where you don't necessarily want to model the attitudes and the behaviors and the beliefs and the thinking of those you work with. But there are a lot of aspects of our life that we do have control over. And we do have control over how much influence we allow those people to have. Here's the second question. Do you ever catch yourself pretending to be someone you're you're really not. Do you spend time with people who, who make you start trying to pretend to be something else? Here's another reflection question. Do you feel pressure to compromise? The people that you're spending time with The more you spend time with them, is there more and more pressure to act or behave or believe something that you know not to be true or not to be acceptable? Here's another one. Has something that has never been a temptation before becoming a live option? Things that you never in the past would have considered, have they started to becoming to become things that you are considering? You know, as we talked about this idea of a cliff, that the danger zone, society tells us, is at the bottom of the cliff. But what we, what we recognize that the edge of the cliff is where the real danger zone is. The bottom of the cliff is doing something you know to be wrong. The edge of the cliff is imagining what it would be like if you did. And are the people you're spending time with making things that before would never have been a temptation a real option? And here's another final question. Do you ever hope that the people you care about don't know where you are or who you are with? This is one of those margin questions. 
that should be a red flag for you in your own mind. Then maybe at this point you haven't even done anything wrong, but the moment you start hoping that people you care about or respect don't know who you're with or the things that you're doing should be a sign to you that you're moving closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. Because the people you spend time with matter. The people you invite into your life matters. We can't allow ourselves to believe the lie that, well, we'll just be different. Well, I'll spend time with them, but I won't start acting like them or thinking like them. Or Who you spend time with matters. Just as Paul and Solomon both taught, the company we keep will determine the trajectory of our lives. The question isn't always what can we get away with, how far is too far. The question we're asking in this series is what is wise? And are we using wisdom as we formulate the people we surround ourselves with? in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I think we've all been at a place in our lives where we've been positively influenced by others and times when we've been negatively influenced by others. Lord, you have called us to live lives of wisdom, lives that honor you. And a part of living a wise life is surrounding ourselves with people that will push us and challenge us to be more of who you've called us to be. So Lord, I pray that you would both convict us in this moment and give us the courage we need to be intentional about the people we allow in our lives, that we would build margin in our lives between the edge of the cliff to live a life that honors you, to live a life of wisdom. Lord, would you encourage and challenge us this morning as we seek to become the people that you have called us to be. Lord, we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.